Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s inspired style and cutting edge performance technology with its sleek mid cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi piece upper construction delivers high energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. Who's your trusted source when it comes to your facility questions, concerns, and needs? Ours is Hard True, the world's largest manufacturer of tennis court surfaces, equipment, and accessories for over 90 years. Partner with their trusted team of experts, along with collegiate greats Jamie Loeb, Alex Rybakov, and Dustin Taylor to bring the service provider of over 30 professional events annually to your facility. Whether it's the red clay of the Houston ATP, the green clay courts of the Charleston WTA, or the official hard court of World Team Tennis, Hard True has you covered. If you're looking to build a court, convert a hard court to clay, or simply resurface your hard court, work together with Hard True in their mission to lead the tennis industry by creating better places to play. To learn more about their state-of-the-art surfaces, along with their catalog customizable on-court accessories, check out hardtrue.com or call 877-442-7878 today. That's hardtrue.com or 877-442-7878 today. Welcome to the Mini Break, your daily podcast for the biggest storylines, results, and controversies from the tennis world. Today is Saturday, June 5th. Now, is that the day you are listening to this podcast? No. But in order to keep our sequence intact, what we're going to be doing on this show is recapping Saturday, June 5th's matches, also known as Day 7 of the 2021 French Open, was a day that saw some fantastic on-court action. Of course, the biggest storyline, Roger Federer surviving in four sets over former college tennis number one singles player in the nation, Dom Kopfer. Want to talk about the quality of that match, Federer's level, and of course, with the benefit of retrospect, his decision to subsequently withdraw from the event. What that all means for his tennis moving through these next few months, of course. There were some other fantastic matches on the day I want to break down. Sonia Ken and Jess Pegula battle of two of the best players in American women's tennis. That was a fun three-setter. We had Iga Sviantek finally tested in a set, but ultimately she advanced in straights over Annette Conteve. Some other fantastic men's and women's results on the day. Lorenzo Musetti into his first fourth round. You had Marta Kostyuk making her move. The resurgence of Sloane Stevens. All of it leading to a fantastic day of action that we are going to recap here on this podcast. Of course, the reason we were able to do that day in, day out on this show is because of the support we get from all of you listeners, from our Crack Rackets Patreon family, and of course, from our friends at Tennis Point. Now, of course, some of you know Midwest Sports is a relationship we hold near and dear here at Crack Rackets. They now go by the moniker Tennis Point. There was no divorce, no messy breakup. They just a little bit of a brand switch. We can all understand that. And so, to make it just a little bit easier for all of you, you're going to go to Midwest Sports 
tennis-dashboard.com, or you can just go directly because you're going to be redirected to tennis-point.com, tennis-point, the symbol, not the spelling, now the home quarters of our fr- former friends at Midwest Sports. And again, they've still got all of the best gear at all of the best prices. You use our promo code Midwest uh, CR15, excuse me. You're going to fi- get 15% off on your order free. Two-day shipping on all orders exceeding $75. Best of all, a free can of extra duty tennis balls. Some of you are thinking, I'm, I lost you there. What did you say? The point is tennis-point.com. The promo code is still CR15. We are so grateful for their continued support. The least we can do is ask you to support them as well. Tennis-point.com. The promo code is CR15. With that in mind, let's just recap day seven. Again, day eight, a preview of day nine. That's going to be a different mini break podcast you're probably going to listen to, hopefully on the same day that you hear this one. But let's start with the big storyline out of day seven. Roger Federer and his impressive level. Yeah, let's say it. He has been impressive through his first three matches. Turns out his only three matches at this 2021 French Open. In the end, he withdraws after knocking off Dominic Kopfer. 7-6-6-7-7-6-7-5. The big thing for Roger Federer was the plus-one tennis, the zero-to-four shot rallies. He was as as effective as he, ha- as I suppose, ever is. You look for him in his first match against Istomin, and again, that's about as generous of a warm-up as he could have hoped for. Made 71% of his first serves, won 80% of those first serve points. Uh, 79% of his second serve points did not face a break point. Roger Federer, front foot tennis, it was effective against Istomin. Against Chilich, he struggled a little bit more, particularly because Chilich did have and does have weapons to extend Federer physically in his movement as precise as it looks. It's not quite as fleet of foot as it once was. Nevertheless, it was the execution on his serve. Made 68% of his first serves, won 75% of those points, 57% of his second serve points. What was the thing he had to do was be aggressive whenever he got a look at Amir and Chilich's second serve. That's exactly what he was able to do. Held Chilich to 17 of 43 or 40% on the Chilich second serve points. Played aggressive return tennis when he was able to do it. Capitalized on those breakpoint chances. 5 of 6 is not great, but it speaks to his continued pressure he placed on Chilich by being aggressive. You look at, you know, the more granular numbers from that match. Federer, of course, wins 97 of the 0-4 to four shot rallies to Chilich's 82. He also played him even on the five pluses, 29 to 29, although I think that's more of a testament to Chilich than it was to Federer. Now, you look at his performance here against Kopfer. I think that's about as good of a proximity as we have seen the mortal version, we'll say, of a Rafael Nadal performance against Federer, at least in terms of game plan and execution of that game plan, by Dom Kofor, as we've seen by anyone in French Open, I suppose, in their career against Roger Federer at the French Open. I said it coming into the match. Kofor was going to have to execute his left-handed backhand down the line. And for those of you unfamiliar, when you're a lefty, you hit your backhand on the deuce side in order to hit it to the Roger Federer backhand, which is obviously the side of the court you want to attack. You have to take that backhand down the line. If you've watched Rafa play Federer over the years, particularly on clay, you know he's hitting high heavy topspin into that Federer backhand corner. Kofor did a really good job of doing that. But more importantly, he was just very accurate with his returns. And against Roger Federer, depth is more important than location. You can't give Federer anything short with your return or he's using that as a plus one ball, hitting an approach shot. Usually it's a forehand approach shot and you're probably losing the point. That's how Roger Federer has become Roger freaking Federer. 
Kofer got great depth on his returns throughout this match, and you look for Federer made 64% of his first serves, but only won 68% of his first serve points, which is still very, very good. It allowed him to hold serve. You know, I think this match, four sets, he was broken four times in four sets. When you're only getting broken once and you're breaking back once, again, a lot of tiebreakers in this one. It was a good serving performance from Federer, but it wasn't great, and that's a testament to the efforts of Kofer to just neutralize that serve, of course, again, Federer was still successful on his service points, won 68% of his first serve points, 58% of his second serve points, but Kofer did a great job absorbing the pace of the Federer return, particularly when Fed would try to go after an inside-outer, inside-in cross-court, just be aggressive with his forehand return. And Kofer won over 60% of both his first and second serve points. He, you know, uh, faced six break points in the match now, uh, or excuse me, faced 14 break points in the match, but fought off nine of them. Uh, look, he played, hit 55 winners to 40 unforced errors, allowed Federer to have to swing freely because that's what Fett had to do to keep pace with Kofer, who made this match about as physical as possible. I mean, the numbers point towards Kofer. He was plus 15, 55 winners against 40 unforced errors to Federer's 51 to 63. But what makes Roger Federer so effective is he's so precise and he knows how he wants to win points. Now, overall, you look for Federer. He actually trailed in the zero to four shot rallies. And again, that's a testament to the effect of Kofer's first serve. He would go, you know, just big into that body and then hit that first forehand, first backhand at the Federer backhand, be aggressive with it as well and change directions. He won 90 of the zero to four shot rallies to Federer 72. Now, Federer going to bail if you hit a good plus one ball. So certainly that skews that stat. And it's a testament to Federer. He was, you know, in total plus 17 on the five plus shot rallies. And that, I think, is a testament to those tiebreakers where he just... You know, and it's a testament when he had success and got breaks in Dom Kofer's service games. It was that he was connecting with the return, and Kofer did a good job tracking that ball down. But why I say it was a mortal version of Nadal is he would leave those outer thirds backhands a little bit short, or he would leave that on the run forehand a little bit short, and Federer would be able to run around that ball, hit a first forehand, get to the net. You look for Federer in this match, 48 of 67 at the net. I think is a much more important stat than his 51 winners versus 63 unforced errors because at this point of his career, he's going to have to play some short points. Uh, but when he got to the net, he was on his front foot. When he was able to attack, he executed at the rate he normally attacks um, and has success with doing. And that's how he advanced. Again, you look uh, really Kofer first set. It's an even set. I believe it was a double fault at 4-6. Or excuse me, at 4-5. That made it 4-6. Kofer gets the next point. But Federer, big serve, big first forehand. He holds for 7-5 and takes that break. Or excuse me, and takes the breaker 7-5 for a 7-6 set. You know, second set break for, breaker. Kofer just gets a couple of ball returns deep at Federer's feet. Federer isn't able to play first forehands. Kofer gets up a mini break, lands a couple of first serves and first forehands. He takes the that set, the set Kofor had to have was set number three, where he was up a break. I believe it was 4-2 in that third set in the early stages, and Federer played a good return game to get it back, but there was, you know, a, a plus one ball missed by Kofor, and you just can't give Roger Federer anything. Then Federer gets to the breaker, and I think he's lost one breaker this season. He's still Roger freaking Federer in the big moments, and there's a gumption to him that, you know, few if any other players match, and that's how he takes that set. Then a loose, yeah, takes the fourth. I mean, I'm not going to break it down play by play. Hopefully you all got the chance to see the match. But Federer executed better in the big moments. He was on his front foot when he needed to be. The unforced errors are the testament to him swinging freely, even when, you know, the rallies weren't going his way. 
Kofor very well could have won this match. And again, long term, this has been Dom Kofor's the real deal, folks. He's going to be a top 75 guy, probably top 60 for the next three to five seasons. Just physically, he is that solid, a complete game, a game that I think is going to translate well across surfaces also. But Federer's Federer. And of course, the big news coming afterwards, Roger Federer withdrawing from the event. Look, there is some hypocrisy to the way the French Tennis Federation immediately issuing him a statement of support and saying, good luck to you at Wimbledon. We appreciate you playing at the event. And it's a stark contrast to the way they handled everything with Naomi Osaka. There's no denying that. And I actually went on the No Challenges Remaining podcast, the podcast of my friend Ben Rothenberg's, and he talked about, you know, why that process was so different and, you know, Federer kind of informing the tournament beforehand, hey, this is the way I'm leaning and the differences in the two processes, but it's and not that Ben was playing defense. Ben was just as critical, but just explaining again the process of what happened. Um, and I highly encourage everyone to go check out the podcast to hear more details. But yeah, it's a stark contrast. It's Roger freaking Federer. Now the tournament's lost Federer, Kvitova, Osaka, all to withdrawals. I mean, you can go. There are more throughout the tournament. It's a noted trend. This French uh, Open has not gone the way I'm sure the French Tennis Federation would have hoped. In terms of from a tennis standpoint, I kind of laid out the case at the beginning. We saw exactly what we wanted to see from Roger Federer. He got the breeze through win, the routine Roger Federer performance in round one. We saw him withstand the power tennis of someone who could match him strike for strike, but could, just couldn't stay with him for the course of four sets in Chilich. And then we saw the physical battle in Kopfer. And of course, grass tennis is significantly different than clay court tennis. But the fact that Roger was able to play a physical battle like this, he's now got a month of grass court warmups as well to get his body right. If you're a Federer fan, you take away positives from this French Open experience. I don't think I'm going to even have to argue that point very strongly. He won his three matches. He leaves technically undefeated. And whether he was going to beat Berrettini or not, and I tend to lean and think that he wasn't, it's irrelevant because he got through this Roland Garros unscathed, played three good and different styles of matches, and is confident in his tennis heading into the start of grass court season. Again, you feel bad for Tom Kofer, who very well could have won that match, and you feel like physically he would have been fine to take on Berrettini in the fourth round, but again, really hard to beat Roger Federer. He proves that as always, earning a four-set win in the third round. And now, again, that's your headline. Federer withdrawing opens up the draw. Berrettini into the quarterfinals where he will play the winner, excuse me, of Djokovic and Musetti. One has to imagine Djokovic the favorite to get through that. But the Berrettini-Djokovic matchup is going to be fun because that's a strong contrast of styles. And obviously, Djokovic, uh, we'll, we'll talk about that in the preview podcast. Sorry, I got ahead of myself there, folks. Anyways, that's a little note to make that uh, say Djokovic wins on this day as well. But Federer offering the withdrawal means Berrettini advances to the quarterfinal. But still, if you're a Federer fan, it, you know, is the Wimbledon title possible? Yes. Is it likely? Absolutely not. But is it possible with the level he showed here in the first week of the French Open, I think you have to answer that yes question, yes. Anyways, someone who we've seen make the finals of the French Open before and someone who was clearly far too underrated heading into this year's event was Sonia Kennett, who advances to the fourth round with a three-set win over Jess Pegula. You look for Kennett in the first week, wins over Ostapenko and Pegula. That's as tough of a draw as you're going to find. And the number four seed advanced today against Pegula, simply put, because she was willing to withstand 
you know, the test of the rally. She was willing to extend those points, five, six, seven shots. You look overall in the match, uh, you know, she wins 38 of the five-plus shot rallies to Pagula's 33. Considering they were playing even on the plus ones, and that's a testament to the precision of Kennan, uh, it speaks to Kennan's ability to absorb that first strike, and it was a testament to Jess Pagula, who went down a quick break and 4-2 in that first set, fought her way all the way back to ultimately take the first 6-4 you know, the first set, she could hold up physically, you know, when Kennan worked her to the outer third, because Kennan doesn't hit the biggest ball, Pagula was there, and she was able to get the ball deep enough on Kennan to where either she drew a first set error from Kennan, a uh, first set, excuse me, an unforced error from Kennan, or she was able to get a ball back in the middle, which Pagula, of course, was able to play first strike with, and when Pagula plays first strike, it looks as effective as anyone's. Uh, but Kennan, again, did a great job extending rallies into the outer third, attacking the second serve of Jess Pagula. Pagula, 13 of 43 on the match, 30% conversion on second serve points. Now, Kennan wasn't much better, 14 of 35, but, you know, again, that's a testament to Kennan just putting so much pressure on Pagula with that first strike return, and then uh, Kennan can just play all of the angles, and she had Pagula constantly stretched, whether it's the short angles cross court, the down the lines, the drop shots, the elevated garbage. You look for Kennan, she hit winners in a bunch of different ways in this match. 48 winners to 41 unforced errors. It just felt like, you know, this was a match that couldn't have that dynamic, that Jess Pagula needed to be on her front foot, being the one dictating, moving Kennan side to side, forcing Kennan to play the slice out of desperation, not out of comfort and not out of the sake of incorporating variety, but that's what Kennan was able to do. And I also thought Kennan did a fantastic job moving in this match. She looked really comfortable sliding in and out of corners, and she neutralized a lot of first strike tennis from Jess Pagula. Now, you look for Pagula, 18 winners against 26 unforced errors. I would have liked to see that unforced errors beat number be a little bit higher because I think that would have meant that she was you know, trying to end points a little bit shorter, at least end those points on her terms. But again, she struggled to do that because Kennan does such a good job of hitting that ball behind you or going short angle when you least expect it or missing in the slice and you think it's going to be a drop shot, but then that slice ends up going deep and you get her stretch and she fires up the lob and then you're back six feet behind the baseline where she wants you to be. And it's just, Kennan can do a lot of different things and it's particularly effective on these clay courts. And now you look at the draw, I mean, for Sonia Kennan, Sakari's a battle, and then she'd have Sviantek. But if she can get through that, I mean, is she your second favorite at this point? Because at least we've seen her in a final, and at this point, can anyone stop Iga? The answer's probably no. Certainly, if you play a first set as good as Annette Conteve did, we'll get to that match momentarily, and you can't beat her. I don't know what it's going to take to freaking beat her in two sets, let alone, or in one set, let alone two. But I mean... You look everywhere else in that top half of the draw. If it's not Kennan, who beats Sviantek? Kostyuk? Maybe. Like, Sloane Stevens is playing really well, but that match is probably on Iga's racket. Coco, Jabour, they're on their back foot the whole time against Iga. I don't know. Like, it's probably got to be... But is it Kennan? I guess we'll find out because Sakari is a tough test. And again, you look for Kennan in this match. It was the variety of things that she did, playing plus one tennis and taking the ball early. She just... Everything's a half second off of what you'd expect it to be against your normal opponent. She did a great job, again, of getting Pagula stretched in the outer thirds. And ultimately, she advances into the fourth round. And for Jess Pagula, it's another step in the right direction. I mean, you look for Pagula in terms of, let's go one of my favorites because we haven't mentioned it in a while, the 2021 ELO ratings. Jess Pagula's 13th in 2021 ELO. 
That's correct. She's been a top 20 player. She's 21 and 9 on the year coming into this tournament, so now 23 and 10. I mean, she's winning two thirds of her matches. She's constantly making quarterfinals, and you win two matches in a week. Normally, you're in the quarterfinals. In this case, obviously, it's the round of 32 against a top five player in the world. And it was a three-cent match. She kept fighting for her to hold. She fought off a couple of match points, I believe, in the 3-5 service game. But then Kennan just played a lights-out service game. I think she hit an ace down the tee. She took a couple of plus-one balls early. She was just better uh, down the stretch than... Um, or excuse me, Kennan was just better down the stretch than Jess Pegula, and I think Pegula just wore down because of how many outer third balls she had to track down. Anyways, victory goes to Kennan in three. She advances to the round of 16 once again, uh, where first she's going to face Maria Sakari, who is a three-cent winner over Lisa Mertens. I'll get back to that match in a second, but got to do two minutes on Iga versus Conteve because you guys know Annette Conteve is very much a litmus test to me. You look at Conteve's numbers, she's ranked 22nd in 2021 ELO according to Tennis Abstract, but 31st in the rankings, 27 and 14 in her last 52. And you look at who the losses have been to, Sviantek, Sakari, Sabalenka, Mertens, Kvitova, Kudermotova, twice to Osaka, like, those are the best players in the world. That's what it takes to beat her. And the other loss is, you know, Shelby Rogers. On Shelby's best day, she can hit through anyone. Fiona Farrow, that was a Palermo final. Sometimes you lose those final matches. Three set losses to Garcia, Kuznetsova, whatever. Like, you have had to be very, very good to beat Annette Conteve in the last 52 weeks. And Annette came out f***ing swinging. I'm sorry to drop the F-bomb, but that's how well she was playing in that first set against Iga Sviantek. She broke her right away to start the match. She was swinging through every backhand and playing plus one tennis, or really plus two tennis, because first backhand would go cross-court, second one would go down the line, third one would go cross-court. She was hitting these forehands down the line with such close margins to the sideline, but landing all of them, and you look at the numbers in the first set, Conteve hit 23 winners against 11 unforced errors. She won, made 64% of her first serve points, won 74% of her first serve points, um, sorry, she made 64% of her first serves, won 74% of her first serve points, won 53% of her second serve points, was one of one on breakpoint chances, and lost the set to Sviantek. That's just a testament to the way Iga Scraps Claus finds her way to win in these matches. And you look for her, look to start out the match, she couldn't land a first serve. As she continued to throughout the course of it, she made you know 59% of her first serves in the first set, but she was 21 of 24 on first serve points. She ends the match 27 of 36, when 75% of those first serve points. She you know was 16 of 17, uh, 16 of 27, 59% on second serve points. Only faced two breakpoint chances in the match. One of them in that second set, which she fought off immediately. And again, it was a 7-6-6 love win for Sviantek. I mean, the first serve is dominant when it lands because it allows her to play plus one tennis, hit that inside out forehand, and then open up, you know, inside out, inside out to hit her inside in. She won 46 of the 74 zero to four shot rallies. So that's a plus 18 margin for Sviantek. And again, Conteve played so well in the first set, and you still look at the numbers in that set. Sviantek won, was plus seven in the zero to four shot rallies. Now, in that set, Conteve, I mentioned the plus two ball. She won 18 of the five plus shot rallies to Sviantek's uh, 14. 
But it just is that hard to put Ego away because she is so fluid out of the corners. Her ability to hit that backhand deep and with enough, uh, really, I suppose, depth is really the word, deep and with enough action on it to make you uncomfortable. And then her ability to change directions, her forehand down the line passing shot is reminiscent of her idol, Rafael Nadal's, her ability to hook it around the corner. Super, super impressive. And then the first serve, obviously, it's not your traditional power tennis. She hits a heavy topspin ball and it hits through these courts. She's also as fluid a mover as you're going to find on clay. I don't. Her hands are good at the net. I don't see an obvious weakness. I've said it all tournament long these past few days. I'm sorry to continue to beat the drum, but she is the player to beat, and it's not particularly close. Even the eye test suggests that much. She's just like, you watch it play, her play, and you're just like this is better than everyone else. And again, Conteve played the best set of tennis I've seen her play in her career. And those stats speak for themselves. 23 winners against 11 errors, unforced errors in that first set. She was swinging through that backhand with such freedom. And if she can bottle that up and perform at that level over the course of a three-set match for three hours, she's going to get into the top 15. She's going to make a quarterfinal, semifinal run at a slam. But look, Iga's a tough test. And when Iga took that first set breaker, you could just feel the, you know, again, the balloon pop. Six love in the second set. Iga advances to another fourth round. Uh, those are the two deep dive women's breakdowns. I do want to do a quick second on Lorenzo Musetti, who becomes the first player born in 2002 to reach a Grand Slam fourth round. And that's scary for me because 2002 is the year my brother was born, my little brother. And I'm like, oh my God, there's someone his age in a Grand Slam quarterfinal. I don't know if that's more indicting on Nikki or that's more indicting on me. Anyways, you look for it. And you'd say, call me Nick. Um, it's it's crazy what Musetti's been able to do in, over these past few months. And you look for him in general. He's 51-23 and 23 over his last 52 weeks. A lot of that is challenger success. So you want me to filter it out and go ATP level? Fine. He's 21-10 and 10 at the ATP level in his last 52 weeks. That's identical 68-69% winning percentages. You want to narrow that down to against top 50 opponents? He's 9-6 and six against top 50 opponents, and that's where the weaknesses sort of begin to manifest themselves. You see the big dip for him in his last 52 weeks. He's won 52% of his second serve points over the past uh, against top 50 opponents. That number drops to 46%. You look at his break percentage, it's 306 Seven overall against top 50 opponents. It's 20%. That's a noticeable 10% dip. And that speaks to the fact that when he plays a top 50 opponent, they're going to attack the second serve and in particular hit it directly at that one-handed backhand. They're going to serve big to that backhand wing as well, play bigger plus one tennis. And he can't get away with being six, seven, eight feet behind the baseline. But in his match against Marco Cecinato, he absolutely could. His athleticism shown through in a 3-6-6-4-6-3-3-6-6-3-5 set victory over the Italian veteran and just I mean he beat him at essentially every level 78 of the zero to four shot rallies he was plus 10 in that category now he's minus I believe eight in the five plus shot rallies but he's only minus eight to a guy that's 10 years his senior and just you know he made 71 percent of his first serves he won 60 percent of his second serve points he was 29 of 53 at the net but he was moving forward that frequently and 50 winners against 41 unforced errors on a day when your opponent's hitting 56 winners against 47 unforced and the Italian men's tennis resurgence is a larger conversation for another time, but it's clearly happening. Musetti 
Cecinato, I mean, Cecinato, Musetti, um, Sinner, uh, Berrettini, Lorenzo Sinego has been excellent of late. Of course, if you're going to talk Italian tennis, you have to talk Fabio Fognini. We saw a Seppi run in this event, Cecinato as well. There's a lot of good players right now. Gianluca Maggiere, that's another name I want to throw a shout out to. There's a lot of good ones in the Italian men's tennis ranks. Lorenzo Musetti might be the brightest of them all. I mean, Sinner's obviously in the lead in that category because the ball just explodes off his rack and his athleticism becomes more and more convincing. And he was just, for him to out-hit Mikhail Yimmer and to just, you know, to hit the ball, but to hit through Mikhail Yimmer is not an Yimmer, is a tough test, and that's what Sinner did in a 6-1-7-5-6-3 victory. But, I mean, Musetti, the creativity, the drop shots, the slices, the ability to go big down the line when the moment just always seems to call for it, his ability to scrap that ball down when you're like, there's no way he's getting to that one. His his ability to slide without his legs popping off of his groin, I just don't get it. But the guy's a freak, and he's going to be in this game for a really long time. He's inside the top 50. I think he's going to go higher than that very, very soon. He'll be a constant presence in the top 30, and he'll take some lumps, and it's going to be interesting to see how his game translates to the grass, but you don't think he's got the shot making for grass, the hands, the creativity? I disagree with you, and I'm not. I'm attacking a straw man. I think a lot of you would agree that he's going to be good across surfaces, and certainly Clay might be the best of those surfaces, and he's only scratching the surface of his potential, but it was a very convincing five-set win for Lorenzo Musetti, who again, 51-23 and 23 overall in his last 52, 21-10 and 10 against ATP competition, 9-6 and six against top 50 competition. Those are real deal numbers. And he, folks, is absolutely the real deal. But with that in mind, let's talk about the rest of the women's results on the day. There was a bunch of good ones. The Sloan Stevens resurgence has has arrived, and she knocked out Mukova three and five. This is the most confident I, I've seen Sloan play since early 2019, late 2018. There's just a freedom with which she's swinging, and she's kind of telegraphing like, "Hey, I'm going inside out here with my forehand." Hey. I'm going inside in here with my forehand. This backhand is going down the line. But it doesn't matter that she's telegraphing it because that's how confidently she's swinging and playing. She's like, I don't care if you know what I'm doing. I'm going to beat you to the spot. And she beat Mukova to the spot. And Mukova didn't have big enough weapons. Felt like she was always on her back foot. Or when she tried to adapt and play on her front foot, Stevens would get a ball deep into her body that would draw an error. And just Stevens was the more solid of the two players, and she's hitting her serve confidently again. Again, the freedom with which she's moving, she's as dangerous as anyone on that top half of the draw to knock out Iga. Again, Iga's the most dangerous player, but you just look overall, like, who who do you have? If Sloan played Coco Goff, who do you lean towards? Or if Sloan played Own Jabour in the quarterfinals, I mean, fine, you, maybe you lean Owns, but ever so slightly, and Steven still has to get through Krejcikova, who rocked Svitolina 3-2 and two and just hit her off the court and does have that sort of explosive first strike that can give Stevens trouble. I just think Stevens a little bit more dynamic and, again, the confidence she's playing with. But, like, outside of Iga, the seven names, Kostyuk, Sakari, Kenan, Krejcikova, Stevens, Goff, Shabur, pick a name out of a hat. They're all playing that high a level at this point. And Sloane Stevens, I think she needed this run. The confidence is so clear. And even if she does lose that match to Krejcikova, Second week of a Grand Slam was not something many predicted for her, particularly given her struggles all of 2020. This is a great mark for her. Into the fourth round, she belongs with the win over Mukova. Speaking of the other players, Krejcikova, 3-2 and two over Svitolina. 
She just, Fidelina couldn't hurt her. And Krejcikov was able to strike forehands, get to the net, play a fre- effective first serve uh, tennis, first strike tennis as well. Again, Svitolina didn't have her best, but Krejcikova took it two or three and two there. Sakari, 7-5-6-7-6-2 over Elisa Mertens. Normally, that's a match I would do 30 minutes on. I would just simply say Mertens felt constantly on her back foot. She wasn't able to get Sakari extended to the outer thirds. It felt like Sakari was always doing the one, getting the rally out there. And then, you know, Mertens is sneaky quick, and her reach is sneaky long. And when she gets her racket on the ball, good things are always going to happen. She has great feel as well, but... Sakari was the one moving her side to side. Sakari's forehand was the heaviest shot on the court, and Sakari landed a high percentage of first serves. And so she, again, Mertens didn't quite have the— I mean, when she, when she was able to play front foot tennis, those first two sets were toss-ups. But Sakari, the fitter in the end, and I think that's because Mertens played some physical matches early on, she advances three-set victory, 7-5, And again, next up for her, Sonia Kennan. We'll talk about those matches on the next podcast you all are going to hear Goff over Brady was obviously a letdown given that Jennifer Brady had to retire down 6-1 in going into the start of the second because of injury. She just played such a physical match against Fiona Farrow and was nursing some injuries coming into this event as well. But look, Coco Goff belongs in the quarterfinals. She's top 10 by ELO rating. She won a title coming into this event and she's she's ready for this scene. I think she's ready for this stage as well. It's going to be a fascinating matchup. But an opponent she knows really well in Onjabur, who dropped another first set, but 3-6-6-0-6-1. Once she found her rhythm against Magda Lynette, that match was never in doubt. Neither was Marta Kostyuk's 6-1-6-2 victory over Garacheva. I mean, Kostyuk's in the Power Tennis Country Club. I mean, she's not. She's definitely a caddy. Like they're like, we're gonna induct you soon. Just have one more big result. Get to that semifinal. Get to you know. Again, I suppose she's one win away from the quarterfinal. It would be an up. She beats Ika. We're inducting her into Power Tennis Country Club. Let's be clear. And I think I talked about that with Jeff Sackman when we last had him on the GSP last week. So again, Kostyuk one and two. She's real. I don't know how else to say it. Like, she belongs at this stage. She's going to be in the top 50 for a very, very long time. On the men's side, what's something we've been saying for a very long time? Novak Djokovic. Rovak Rokovic. That's what I almost called him. Novak Djokovic. Rafael Nadal. Advanced to another fourth round at a Grand Slam for Djokovic. 1-4-1 against Barankis. Respectfully, Barankis couldn't hurt him. Nadal, 3-3-3 over Nori. I love Cam. It was a great clay court season for him. No one's coming out of the season with more confidence added than Cam Nori, barring a next-gen slam title here at the French Open. If Tsitsipas wins the title, he will be the one guy to have gained more confidence more than Cam Nori, who just proved he belonged at the clay court level, which was not something you could say early in his career. But the best of the best is Nadal, and he just couldn't hurt Nadal easily, and that's what you have to do if you're going to have any prayer against him at Roland Garros. Nadal cruises once again. Good win for Berrettini over Quan, and now he gets the day off to rest up all of the ailments before he gets the ultimate physical test against Novak Djokovic, or I suppose Musetti, but let's be honest here. And look, if Berrettini's first serve, first forehand's landing, he's playing on his terms. He can beat anyone. Now it's a locked-in Djokovic who takes away first forehands with his return better than any player in tennis history. But that's a match I'm keeping my eye on for sure. Schwartzman. The draw gods have blessed him after a brutal clay court stretch. He's into the fourth round almost by default, but 
three-set win over Cole Schreiber. At least he's had a chance to find his level now as he's got Jan Leonard Struve, who's got the biggest weapons and honestly the most confidence of any player he's played thus far. Was a good win for Struve in three sets over Alcaraz. Alcaraz just struggled to handle the pace of Struve's serve, and then that first ball, it felt like Alcaraz was on his back foot for far too long. And look, third round for him, 18 years old. This French Open was a success. And then I mentioned it earlier, Sinman, Nadal, that's your best fourth-round matchup on the men's side, and it promises hopefully to be a doozy because if someone's got the weapons and the huevos to hit through Rafael Nadal and believe they can do it, it is Yannick Sinner. He believes he can do it. Now, again, can he do it? Probably not, but he believes he can. That's half the battle. He's got the weapons. If Nadal serves poorly, anything can happen. I think that's the one big upset left in the draw. You know, if if that happens... Or if Davidovich Fokina makes the final, we'll have some emergency pause on our hands. But, you know, again, Nadal's looked really good. Djokovic has looked really good. All of these top seeds, we still have Djokovic, Nadal, Tsitsipas, Medvedev, Zverev. Those are five of your top eight seeds. Berrettini should have been eight above Federer, so we'll say six of the top eight. Schwartzman's nine, uh, you know, that makes it, or seven of the top ten. Yeah, the, the big boys brought their best stuff. Second week of the French Open should be electric. But that will do it for your Day 7 recap. Again, the big news, Federer winning, then withdrawing, a bunch of fun matchups unfolding. Now, we've already seen them unfold by the time you are hearing this episode, so I'm not going to preview them, but I will let you all know we're recapping Day 8 separately, previewing Day 9 for you all on this mini break feed. So rest assured, we are playing catch-up to ensure if you missed any of the action, you can get yourself back in the loop with our Cracked Rackets podcast. Of course, it's this show, the Great Shot podcast, which on Monday will be recapping all the past week's challenger action. Exciting week in Little Rock. Exciting week in Biela as well. You don't want to miss Damian Kust and Jakob Bobro or any of the other Great Shot Podcast we will have for you all throughout the week. Of course, if you need the more immediate updates, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, we are at Crack Rackets. You want to message me directly, I am at Great Shot Pod. A shout out, as always, to our super producers, Max Fligner and Daniel Westoff, for the <laughs> of editing job they do day in, day out. A shout out, as well, to our friends at Tennis Point, tennis-point.com. The promo code is CR15. With that in mind, for all our super producers, Max Flieger and Danny Westoff, for our friends at Tennis Point, and from all of us here at both Cracked Rackets and the Tennis Channel Podcast Network, I'm your host, Alex Gruskin. You know what we say. That's the break, and we will see you all later today. Thanks, everyone. Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s-inspired style and cutting-edge performance technology with its sleek mid-cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi-piece upper construction delivers high-energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. 